I'm glad that um, you got to hear all the reasons why you shouldn't go to MYC. Um, I do want to reiterate that last one, though. Um, if you are struggling financially to make it work, and that's the reason that you can't come, please don't let that be the reason uh, that you don't come to MYC. Come and tell us, talk to one of the staff, uh, talk to one of your small group leaders. We will make sure that you can get there, and that's not an issue. We think this, this kind of week is so important in, in your kind of moment, in, the, in this part of your Christian growth. Uh, that we'll bend over backwards to make sure that you can be there. So I just want to emphasize that to you uh, again, uh, because it's just something that maybe you need to hear a couple more times. Go, oh, but, it, but it's a lot of money. Yeah, it is, but it's it's worth it compared to what it might be if you miss out on NYC. So that's just something to kind of have in, in the back of your heads. Um, let's turn our attention to Leviticus then. Uh, this is the last of three talks in Leviticus. I want to begin by asking you a question. Do you have a life motto? Um, I've been kind of doing the deep dive into personal organisation over the last couple of years. Uh, and one of the things they keep telling me is that you need to have a personal mission statement. And if you don't have a personal mission statement to kind of work out how you're going to live and what you're going to say no to, then your life is just going to be a failure. Do you have a motto, a life statement by which you kind of view the world? Uh, I think of some of them. Maybe one of them is no regrets. Uh, maybe it is live fast, die young. Um, back in the day, uh, UWA changed its motto from Seek Wisdom, which is a great motto, uh, to, what was it, Pursue Impossible, and everybody laughed at them so hard that they had to change it back because it's ridiculous. Uh, what is your motto? Uh, the, the Israelites, under the Levitical system, had a motto, and it was a motto that we saw um, in the first week when we started our talks here, uh, in Leviticus 19, verse 2. God said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, if you remember, Leviticus is an instruction manual. We've got prayers, we've got songs, we've got letters in the Bible, but we've got one instruction manual, and that's the book of Leviticus. And in it, God outlines the means by which Israel could live in such a way that God would dwell with them. And those instructions are extensive. But you can all boil it down to this one little motto here on the screen. It was the lens through which the Israelites viewed all of life. And so what we started to do two weeks ago is unpack what that meant for the Israelites. And so in the first talk, we explored the world of Leviticus. And we saw that God divided everything in the world into two sets of categories. We had the common and the holy, and we had the unclean and the clean. And the overwhelming preoccupation of Israel was that in every time and in every place and in every activity, they were to ensure that they were clean instead of unclean. Because God was holy, and the one thing that couldn't happen is for unclean things to come in contact with holy things, because to do so was to profane the name of the Lord. And if that happens, the result was that you'd be cut off from God's presence and his people, and so all of life was about living above that purple line there on the diagram. They were to be holy as the Lord was holy. But what we, what we saw in that first week is that the Levitical system was designed in such a way that it was impossible to do that. Uncleanness was unavoidable. And so in our first talk, we learned our first lesson. Only holy people can approach God and we are not holy. In other words, we are sinful. And we ended that talk with a dilemma. And the dilemma was this. If, if God is the source of life and blessing, and it's his presence that mediates those things to his people, but we can't get near to him because of our sin, then how is it that we will ever experience the blessing of life with God? 
We were left thinking, how do we get there? And that introduced us to talk two, which was last week, where we resolved that dilemma. Tim came in and fixed all the problems with his theological brain. And he showed us from Leviticus that God himself provides the means by which we are made holy. And he does that through a little thing called sacrifice. It is only by the shedding of blood that we can be cleansed of the guilt of our sin and made fit to dwell with God. Now, the Bible has a word for that. The word is atonement. And that's really the thing that we're talking about at NYC. So if you want to hear more about that, come along. Uh, And so if we can update the diagram, what essentially was happening was this. In talk one, we learned that sin in the world caused clean things to become unclean. But then in talk two, we learned that sacrifice reversed that damage. And the shedding of blood cleansed us and made us holy. And now once you lock that into place then, a whole bunch of Leviticus starts to make sense. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Leviticus is the book where all Bible reading plans go to die. You've just got no idea why you're reading seven chapters of how to sacrifice this ram or, or this bull. But, but once you understand this particular principle, you then understand that these aren't tedious and irrelevant details that have nothing to do with me anymore. Every single verse here is an expression of God's grace as he prescribes to us the means by which we might be able to dwell with him and receive his blessing despite our sin. And so the second lesson was this. God makes us holy through the means of sacrifice. And it doesn't take too long to work out how that might apply in the case of the Lord Jesus. But having learned those two lessons, we now arrive at our third and final talk in Leviticus, our speed run through it, and our third lesson. Having learned that we're not holy, having learned that God makes us holy, we now learn that we are to respond to what God has done by being holy. In other words, our holiness matters. I think we have a tendency as Christians to underrate holy living, and it's because we rightly emphasize the means of salvation, and it's not works. There is nothing that we can do to earn God's favor or stay in God's favor. The only way that we ever receive salvation in Jesus is if we put our faith in him and just go, yep, I can't do anything. It has to be Jesus, 100% Jesus. But because of that, we then kind of go, well, obviously, the rest of life isn't really important. If our works don't contribute or don't take away, then, then who cares about them? But the thing that we often miss is that when God saves us through that faith without any of our works, he doesn't just save us from a curse to a blessing, takes away judgment and, and, and you know, gives us eternal life. He saves us to a new way of living. And it's a life that's lived in response to what God has done for us. And so today what we want to do is we want to hone in on that response of holiness. Reflect on what it means to go back to that key verse, to be holy because the Lord our God is holy. So to locate us in the book, um, if you remember the manual has four parts. Uh, Really what we're doing is we're looking at that last part, the biggest chunk of Leviticus, where we get given a whole bunch of instructions on holiness in all areas of our life. And what I want to do is I want to start us off in the chapter that um, was read for us by Lance before, in chapter 20, uh, in verses 7 and 8. It's part of today's reading. If you've got your Bibles in front of you, have a look at chapter 20, verse 7 to 8. Because it's here that we find the attitude that all of God's people are to have in light of what he has done for them. Uh, Here's what it says. I've been kind to you today, so I put it here on the slide as well. He says, Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. 
Now, you've got to remember your definition of holiness. Remember this from a couple of weeks ago. It is not in the first instance moral living. We tend to think that. Uh, But to be holy is to actually fundamentally at its core to be set apart for a special purpose. So remember my towels. Remember my towels? I have common towels and holy towels. And the common towels I use for anything and everything. Just say, okay, I'm wet. Okay, I use that. I'll just mob it on the ground. I'll use that. I'm cold. I'll put some towel around me. But we had holy towels that were set aside exclusively for guests. So for whatever weird reason you end up staying at my place, um, you will get the holy towels. And you'll look at those towels and you'll go, these aren't morally upstanding towels. Of course they're not. They're living moral lives. But they're holy because they've been set apart, in this case, just for you. And so to drive home the point that I'm making here, I want to show you another translation of this verse. Um, This one is not from the NIV. This one is from the MIV, the Matthew International Version. Uh, It's a more literal translation. Um, and, And this is what God says, effectively. Set yourselves apart and be set apart, because I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and follow them. I am the Lord who sets you apart. Now, that might be a little confusing at first glance, But it's actually clarifying, isn't it? God takes the Israelites and he sets them apart to be his people. That's verse 8. And then what are they to do? They are to set themselves apart and then be set apart. So in other words, there's an attitude and then a kind of corresponding or follow through action there. Uh, And the best way I can think about this is it's like the time that you were conscripted to the army. Remember that time when you were conscripted to the army? Um, No, but your grandparents probably do because it happened in World War II In fact, it still happens in some places in the world today. Uh, Singapore has national service where everyone gets scooped up for two years and they don't have a say in it. And you are taken out of your normal life and the government sets you apart for the defence of your nation. Now that happens to you. You can't do anything about that. But now what is required of you is to embrace that new reality. Not just think of yourself as a soldier, but live it out. How stupid would it be if that once you kind of kind of moved into the army barracks, you left them to sleep at night in your family home? You don't do that anymore. You're a soldier. You sleep in the barracks. You don't rock up to the parade ground wearing socks and crocs. You might try, but you'll get dishonorably discharged. Uh, you come to the parade ground in a uniform, and it's because you have been set apart to be a certain thing. And that's the sort of mentality that God is calling on the Israelites to have. They were set apart to be his holy people, And so all of their life needed to be consciously lived through that one reality. Now, as we read through the book of Leviticus, we're given several reasons as to why they should be holy. And I want us to focus on the two main ones today. Uh, And both of them we see also in our reading today in chapter 20, in this case, verse 26. Uh, And and this is where uh, we're, we're told what the two reasons are. God says to the Israelites, you are to be holy to me. Because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. So the first reason there is in that first part of the sentence. Israel is to be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Just to be clear, this is the central reason that God gives us as he calls them to a response of holiness. We see it a whole bunch of times in Leviticus. Uh, If you're taking notes, we see it in in chapter 11, verse 45. We see it in chapter 19, verse 2. And we see it here in chapter 20, verse 26. And the easiest way to think about this reason is is in terms of identity. Often we think of salvation as a transaction, like we were talking about before. Like, I repent and believe, and God gives me salvation. But it's better to think of salvation in terms of a relationship. 
Because part of God saving us is God claiming us to be his own. We don't just kind of get given a, a, a Jesus voucher that says we won't be judged and we just kind of put that in our back pocket and just kind of cruise through life. We're brought into a relationship with God as one of his people and that means reflecting who our God is. And so we are to be holy because he is holy. But what on earth does that mean? What does it mean for God to be holy? Well, this is where things get more frustrating because Leviticus never explicitly tells us. It just makes the statement that he is. But rather than kind of jumping off ship and then kind of using whatever theological knowledge we think we have to kind of work out what holiness is, it must be God being moral behavior, again, that, that kind of assumption. I want to start with the core concept that Leviticus gives us. Remember the MIV translation. Israel is to be set apart because the Lord their God is set apart. And what that means then is to call God holy is to call him distinct. God himself is set apart. He's different. He's distinct from all other things. All other things are created, but he's the one who created them. In fact, it's the reason that we worship him, isn't it? Because he's not like this kind of lamp or this table or this other human being next to me. He is something so transcendent and great and beyond our imagining, uh, just so far off and other, uh, that our relationship to him is such that he is set apart, different, distinct and holy. And so Israel, as God's people, were to be like him. But how on earth do you do that? Like, you're a human being. You can't just kind of go, well, I'm going to be other and transcendent, kind of turn into some sort of energy ball and then kind of rise through the roof. We, we can't do that. It's impossible to be distinct and unlike everything in all of creation. That's for God and God alone to do. So how do you even approximate that? Any ideas? I think we'd be stabbing in the dark, right? But this is why God in his goodness is so kind, because he tells us what holiness looks like for his creatures to mirror and reflect him, which is actually why he gives us the book of Leviticus. He tells us what holiness looks like. And this is why it's so important to let scripture inform our understanding of what holiness is. Because as we read through Leviticus, the thing that we learn that sits at the heart of God's holiness is not in the first instance moral living. It includes that. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But the thing that sits at the heart of God's holiness is actually his purity. And we see that both morally but also ceremonially as well. We see it morally again in chapter 20 uh, through all of those awkward prohibitions, warnings against adultery and child sacrifice and trafficking with demons and, and using um, uji boards and, and that sort of thing. But, but not just morally, we see it ceremonially as well. Um, have a look at chapter 19, verse 19. What do you make of these commands? Do not make different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. Why did God give those commands to his people? Well, there's nothing intrinsically morally wrong about any of those things. I mean, if you want to crack out the cotton and polyester blends and rock that fashion world, then you be my guest. If you want to go and breed a liger, nothing's stopping you. Be my guest. There's nothing morally wrong about that. If you want a crocopotamus or, or some sort of like, I don't know, hipper dog, or you, you can work it out. You might be creating some sort of other sins because you're abusing animals at that point. But there's nothing inherently wrong with that breeding thing of two animals here. And I think the reason for that. Um, is simply because what underlies God's holiness is not, strictly speaking, the morality. It's a part of it, but it's a bigger thing than that. It's purity. And we see this, strangely, in the prohibition against bestiality. 
So let's have a look at chapter 18, verse 23. Another awkward verse to read out, kind of gives you the weird heebie-jeebies. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourself with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. Now that word at the end, perversion, literally means mixing. Now it's not to say that there's like, you know, bestiality is back on the table and that's not morally wrong. It is, right? It is detestable to God. But what it shows you is that Israel being called to be holy is more expansive than just a morality. They're to be pure, not just in the morally loaded situations of life, but also in the morally neutral ones as well. And so holiness has at its core that pure moral living, but there's this kind of bigger picture here going on of purity. And so Israel's life was to reflect that because God himself was that. And that was the first reason. Now, we're given a second reason. It sort of derives from this first reason. Uh, And again, it's in Leviticus 20, verse 26. And the second reason is this. Israel is to be holy because God had set them apart from the nations. Have a look at the verses just before that in verse 22. So this is just still in our reading from today. uh, And you can see it in your Bibles there. I've also been kind and put it up on the screen. He says this. Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them. So that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I am going to drive out before you. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them, I hated them, detested them. And then he finishes by saying, I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. And so Israel was to live differently. To live differently to all the other nations around them. And God had a purpose for doing this. He wasn't just kind of forming a club and going, well, you know, I'm the God of computer games. It looks like we're all going to be playing computer games to reflect me. The reason that he does um, is because of a purpose. Now, if we think of that first reason as a kind of a notion of identity, well, this one is sort of like purpose and vocation. Like you have kind of a life mission. Now, again, we don't see this explicitly in Leviticus. But where we do see it is at the beginning of the relationship between Israel and God in a place in Exodus chapter 19. Uh, And here it is, starting in verse 3. It's a very, very significant verse for understanding what God's people were to do. Uh, And we're told it says this, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you were to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you were to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt And how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So they're not a collector's item. Like I've collected some people, I'm going to put them in a glass jar. They have a vocation in the world. And the question that I have for you is what is that vocation? What do you think it means at that very last point in verse 6 to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? So that's a question for you and the person next to you. You've got 30 seconds. Go for it. Alrighty. That should be enough time to get you guys thinking. Um, what do you think it means? What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation? I think what it means is this. They were to be, as a corporate body of people, the way that God's presence was mediated to the rest of the world. You see, they as a nation had been taken out of the rest of the nations, out of the nations of sin, by the grace of a holy God, and they were to, in response to that gracious redemption, now be so changed and live in a way that was completely distinct from the rest of the world 
and in doing so display God to that world. And so everything about their life was to be different, not just morally, but culturally. It's why Leviticus is so all-encompassing. God made it impossible for anyone who came across this culture to not palpably feel the difference. It's like walking into a gym for the first time. I don't know whether you've ever experienced that, but I'm like petrified of those places. I'll walk into anything, but don't make me walk into a gym. Because I walk in there and there are these machines just everywhere and these guys kind of bulking up and ta- where do I put these towels and what's this kind of contraption sitting in front of me? And, and, and I'm just like, this is not a place that I belong. But I see that guy, I want to look like that guy. Right? And that's the sort of attitude that, that, that's kind of happening here with Israel. You're supposed to come across the nation and go, this is completely wonky, but this is actually something that maybe I want to be a part of. And so God tells his people to be holy, having set them apart from the nations, so that as they looked on and saw Israel, they'd actually see something of the God that they worship. They were to mediate his presence and reveal his uh, kind of being to the world. So those were the two reasons, I think, that we see. There's more, but those are the two big ones in Leviticus. Israel was to be holy because God was holy. And they were to be holy so that they could display that holy God to the world. That was their response. Now for us, we fast forward a couple of thousands of years. We leave that old covenant behind. We get rid of the sacrificial system because Jesus is our sacrifice. And we embrace the new covenant that was brought about by the work of Jesus And we actually see, as we read through the New Testament, that our response of holiness isn't actually all that much different. Uh, We see that those two areas, identity, vocation, both of them are taken up again in the letter of 1 Peter. Uh, But there are two differences that I want us to be aware of as we head through. Uh, The first difference is this. Many of the expressions of holiness that God gives to his people in the book of Leviticus no longer directly apply to us. Now, a whole bunch of people have a whole bunch of different ways of trying to, to, to work that one out. Uh, but there is just this reality that there is that some of those things that we see no longer apply. And if we had a fourth talk, we'd spend it on this. How do we actually work out what holiness looks like in light of what Jesus has done for us? Because we don't go into a field these days and kind of go, huh, am I allowed to kind of have barley and wheat in, in, in the same field? Is, is, that, a, is that a sin? We, we, don't, we don't think about that, do we? Uh, we just kind of go, all right, well, let's just put some seed around. Well, I'm sure farmers know what's happening. I've never been a farmer. And so, so they, they maybe think that, yeah, maybe two seeds is a bad idea for different reasons. But they wouldn't do it for holiness reasons, right? Now, that might be obvious to us, but there's a whole bunch of other things that kind of roll through the Leviticus that, that aren't particularly obvious. And so there are differences. And that's why when we move to the New Testament, that kind of moral nexus of moral living becomes so prominent But we still need to hold in our heads the fact that to be holy, to be consecrated, set apart, is wider than just moral living. It is more expansive than that. And this is the second difference, I think. Because it's not just our moral decisions. It's all about decisions. It'll involve our decisions and our priorities. So here's an example for you. Say, you know, you've got lots of money. You've been giving money to church. You've been very faithful and generous and self-sacrificial with all of that. But you've still got a bit left over. You can buy yourself a convertible or a van. Which choice is the sinful choice? Neither, right? You're free as Christians to exercise what God has given you, provided you're being generous and all those sorts of things. Choose the convertible, choose the van. But here's the thing. What's the holy choice? Convertible seats one person. Drive around the place. Maybe you just want to pick up chicks. I don't know. That's pretty bad. That's not a holy decision. Van... I can fill this sucker with a whole bunch of youth group kids and get them to youth group every week and they can't do that normally because they come from disadvantaged families. 
Now, again, I'm not saying that buying convertible is therefore always bad, but do you see the difference? You're free to make a choice, but the holy mindset that Jesus gives us, our response of holiness, doesn't just invade our moral actions, but all of our priorities as we think about what does it look like to be set apart for Jesus and his purposes. And so we might go, actually, the holy choice in my particular circumstance is to buy the ugly van because it's actually going to help me serve Jesus. If you choose the convertible, you're not sinning. But there's a kind of a greater scope of holiness going on there. And that's just a, 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 a slight difference or maybe an expansion that happens when we're suddenly outside of the cultural context of Israel where everything was prescribed for them all the time. So those are some differences. But let's, let's kind of bring this home then and have a look at those two things for us as Christians. First of all, let's have a look at identity. Now, we see this in 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 14. Uh, Peter was one of the apostles, uh, and this is what he says to a bunch of people uh, who were Christians. He says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, here's the response, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. He's quoting Leviticus here. Since you call on a father who judges each works, uh, each person's work impartially, Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now you've got to remember, we saw this in our reading, forgiveness under the old covenant was costly. Yeah, It involved the shedding of blood. And what Peter's point is right at the end of this passage is that forgiveness of all sins by the God of, our, of, of Jesus through the sacrifice of his son, that is just so much more beyond. And yet the warning here is clear. It's not like Jesus forgives you of all sins, so relax. Jesus, Jesus forgives you of all sins and so live life in reverent fear. Holiness still matters. And we see this in Leviticus, I think, just in general, don't we? A biblical scholar, at one point he was teaching a semester on Leviticus and he gave his class an assignment. And he said to them, for one whole week, I want you to go out and follow as many laws in Leviticus as you can. You thought your assignments were bad, group assignments, pulling your hair out. This is just the pits, right? And they went out and they did it for a week. And here's what one of the students wrote at the end of the week. He said this, every day I found myself focusing on thinking about ritual purity and impurity. Partway through the week, I realized that I was thinking about these things all day long and in every aspect of my life. And that's when it hit me. God cares a lot about our purity and holiness, not just from a ritual perspective, but also from a moral perspective. All day long and in every aspect of life, the Lord wants me to pursue purity in my heart, in my life, in my actions. He wants me to reflect his holiness in all that I do. I have been treating holiness way too lightly. God takes sin seriously. And we saw that in chapter 20 as it was read out, didn't we? Did you see all of the punishments for sin that came along? That kind of broke down into three of them. Uh, You could either be killed, cut off from God's people, or made childless. And in all three of those cases, it was a means of separating you and your family from the blessing of God and living in the land. It is full on. I don't know whether you noticed that, but that actually also implies something about our sin, at least under the Levitical system. There were some things that animal sacrifice would not forgive you of. If you did certain things, there were no second chances, no questions asked, you were booted out of the people. 
But now under Jesus, we actually have this great and wonderful privilege of being forgiven for anything and everything that we've ever done. And that is a precious truth. There is nothing that you can do that God will not forgive if you come to him in repentance and faith. It is a treasured truth. But the thing that Leviticus and 1 Peter warns us against is treating that truth, that forgiveness we find in Jesus, as cheap. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, brought into relationship with a holy God. And so we respond by living holy lives of reverent fear. So that's identity. Uh, What about vocation? Well, we don't live in the political nation of Israel anymore. And so like we mentioned before, holiness and what it looks like for Christians is going to be different for what it looks like for Israel. We aren't Amish. There's no cultural distinctives anymore. You can put two people next to each other, a Christian and a non-Christian, here in this room even perhaps, and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference outwardly. There is no signs. Maybe they're wearing a Jesus T-shirt, but even then you don't know, right? So what is it that distinguishes Christians? How is it that we can be vocational in our holiness? Well, the thing that we realise as we kind of keep reading through 1 Peter is that God's vocation to his holy people to show God to the world hasn't changed. But it's not, you know, not the, tri- the non-trimming of our beards or wearing certain clothing. It's in our actions. And so we see this in 1 Peter chapter 2. And he says this, But you are a chosen people. He's talking to Christians here. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You're seeing the Exodus language here. Like this is exactly how Israel was described. And it gets transferred to us. And we are those things that we may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. This is holiness language. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now, I want you to see both the similarity and the differences here between our vocation and and Israel's. The similarity, we have been saved, made the people of God, and now we function weirdly as a priesthood to the rest of the world. Not as mediators in the sense that Jesus is, he's the only priest, but in the sense that we kind of sit between God and a sinful world and actually show God and, and, and kind of make God available to that world. But the difference is in how we do it. You see, in Israel, the model was attractional. They would live such profoundly different and weird lives that the other nations would look on and go, I want a piece of that. But for Christians, believers who are among all the nations who we can't see the difference between you and, and, and some other person who isn't a Christian, it can't just be attractional. Uh, to kind of prove the point, there's a famous story, no idea whether it's true or not, uh, about a man who was a Christian at his workplace. He lived a godly life. Uh, So godly, everyone noticed until somebody came up to him and said, hey, listen, mate, we've we've noticed there is something so different about the way that you live. That's how we know you're a Buddhist. And, you know, your heart sinks at that point, whether or not it's true. You understand the point. Actions alone are not going to be able to express the God who saves us and calls us out out of our darkness and into his wonderful light. We are no longer distinctly ethnic in our difference And so our vocation can't just be attractional, it has to be verbal. And that's why up there in verse 9, we are saved that we may declare the praises of him who calls us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. A little bit later on in chapter 3, we're told that we are to be prepared to give an answer to anybody who asks us for the reason 
for our hope. You see, the way that people are introduced to God, called into relationship with him, is verbal. We communicate the gospel. But that doesn't mean then that holiness of life doesn't have a place in our vocation. Because throughout the New Testament, the response of a holy life is sort of like confirmation of the message that we preach. And we all know that's true, right? Because what happens whenever a famous kind of Christian leader or pastor is revealed to have sinned, you know, sexually sinned or or, or had some sort of bullying stuff going on? People stop believing, don't they? They throw in the faith. They leave church. And so whilst it might not be the essential component to preaching the gospel, it is a necessary component, living a holy life in response to God's grace. And what the challenge of the New Testament is, off the back of Leviticus, is that we are to live such good lives amongst the pagans, amongst those people in our society, in our workplaces, in our classes, that people have no choice but to give glory to God. Now, most of them will probably do it begrudgingly at Christ's return. I think that's what verse uh, 12 is suggesting there. In this life, they will not find the Christian life of holiness attractive. And that shouldn't surprise you because people love sin. They want to live for themselves. They don't want to live for God. They actually don't want to have anything to do with the holiness of God. They want to be set apart for themselves. And so they'll look at your refusal to do certain things. They'll look at the way that you think about sexuality and gender Um, They'll look at the choices that you make and and whether it's, you know, to deny career advancement to kind of serve more at your church or even to leave your profession entirely to go into ministry or to seek overseas mission. And they'll look at you and they'll see your moral choices, they'll see all of your choices to be set apart from God and they will ridicule you. They will be befuddled and offended by you. But what Peter tells us is that if we persist in living holy lives in the face of that persecution... Some people will ask, why haven't you stopped? We thought you would have thrown in the towel by now. What's going on? And it'll be in those moments that we have the opportunity to share the hope of the gospel and why it is that we are living lives set apart for Jesus. We'll get to tell them our lessons, that God tells us that we're not holy, that God tells us that in his mercy he made us holy through the sacrifice of Jesus. And then we'll get to tell them about our life of response to what he has done for us in the gospel, about how he has set us apart so we have set ourselves apart for his service, not just in this life, but in the next life forever, dwelling with God, the source of all life and blessing. And so the challenge for today as we finish, and the challenge of the book of Leviticus is simply this, will you be who God sets you apart to be? Will you be holy? Amen.